0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the short-term show. We have Derek Tellier, one of, I would say, the top short-term rental real estate agents in the country. Agents, not agents, agents in the country. Uh, He is on our team here at the short-term shop in the Smoky Mountain Market. And this year, he has closed right around 125 deals for a total of $75 million. He is connected his uh, investor clients with so uh, definitely excited to interview him because he's got quite a big portfolio of his own, but also want to hear some of his insight on the agent side. So how's it going, Derek?
1: Good. Uh, thank you for thanks for working around my schedule and making this work. It's been challenging trying to coordinate with us, but uh, it's been exciting. Those numbers are uh, sound impressive uh, to me. Even I don't really <laughs> I kind of pay attention, but uh, that's a, that's a lot of stuff going on this year.
0: Yep. Yep. We have all this all this tracking stuff for you guys to track everything and track clients and production and things like that. So uh, I I snagged that before the episode, and I feel like you're making fun of me because I've canceled on you twice. Uh, so sorry about that. <laughs> one well, of which they're both out of my control, but the office not having power was kind of a bad one.
1: Well, and for and for perspective, uh, we actually originally recorded an episode uh, about eight months ago. And uh, I went back to you this this summer and said, man, I've changed. I've had a lot happen since we recorded that. And it hasn't aired yet. I'd prefer to start over. So I appreciate you working on, on that and be willing to do that for me.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's dive in a little bit. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself and how you ended up uh, investing in real estate.
1: Well, uh, I full. Full, throw it out there every time uh, your husband, Luke, is who got me interested in looking at this. And uh, when I first met you guys, you were just getting started in real estate. You know, our, our friendship and background goes back way before. I, I, I know you guys had a long term rental or two, but I know I know we were talking before short term rentals. So I was just a W-2 guy um, living the uh, quote unquote American dream, you know, buy a house, have a decent car uh lifestyle creep you you make more money you spend more money and uh, met you guys and Luke and I just started we, we hit it off we became friends and he just started talking to me about this real estate and I, ironically it didn't hit me until later uh, when I was about 6 years old my parents bought a five family apartment house in uh Winsocket, Rhode Island which is where I'm originally from and you owned it for about 6 or 7 years and then we bought a little house in the suburbs and I didn't even contemplate the idea of real estate investing, even knowing that, you know, that was a little bit of my background. But uh, Luke really started turning me on to it. And uh, once I decided it was time to get serious, I just started consuming education, podcasts, audiobooks. Luke told me to listen to Rich Dad, Poor Dad, told me to start listening to Bigger Pockets, started getting on the forums, just started digging in education wise and took some time, but uh, started going to meetups, started hosting my own meetup, and just started to steamroll it from there and and once once the ball started rolling it moved fast
0: it really really does and i always i think i've talked about on a few episodes back we were talking about partnerships and that we met our partner on uh, a rock and roll cruise at the bar which i think is also where we met you so all roads lead back to the monsters of rock cruise or rock and roll in general
1: Absolutely, uh, I uh, I walked up to you guys at the buffet, I think. And uh, <laughs> Luke and I had Harleys in common. I knew you didn't live that, guys didn't live that far away from me. I walked up to him, I handed him a business card. I think I did that about two or three years in a row. And then we actually sat down and had lunch together one day. And I think it was just after that, that uh, he actually reached out to me and got his Harley into the shop I worked at. And you guys were buying short-term rentals and that's when it all really got started.
0: Yeah, yeah, and we actually call you Tony. Uh, <laughs> because luke got your name wrong for far too long like uncomfortably long to where now we just you're tony yeah derek tony <laughs> that's how you're saved in my phone derek tony
1: hey whatever works whatever whatever makes me memorable i'm good with
0: <laughs> so let's dive into your portfolio real fast so you have a mix of short terms and long terms what came first let's hear about it the
1: first one was a was a long-term rental uh it was a full burr. Uh, I bought this thing with a, with a uh, private lender, basically a partner, if you will, but he was strictly the money partner. He loaned me the cash to do the purchase as a cash purchase. He loaned me enough money for my rehab budget. Like everybody's first deal, it went way too long and it went extremely over budget. I actually had done a refinance on my primary residence, which was kind of my cushion if I went over budget, which of course I did. Uh, It took me about six months to get that property completely renovated, done, and a tenant in there. But when I did, I got the refi. I pulled out 100% of all the money I owed, including his interest, his payment back, my money. The only thing I left in that deal was about $5,000 worth of closing costs in the refinance. Put a tenant in there, had a mortgage payment of about nine fifty. dollars and got a tenant in there paying $1,800. That was my first deal. Second deal was I bought a new primary residence, downsized, converted my old primary residence into a rental. So that was two long-term rentals. And then started working with you and bought my first short-term rental right about that time. And I have scaled that to just closed on my 11th short-term rental. And I did convert one more that second, that last primary, I converted into a long-term. So right now, I'm at 11 short-term and three long-term and uh, helped my daughter buy her first house this year. So while that's not a true investment property for me, it is a property that my name is on and it's an investment property for her because she's house hacking. So if you throw that in, that's 15 in roughly two and a half years.
0: So you're telling me this is something that can be done in a relatively short period of time, even if you are not a rich person.
1: Even if you are not a rich person, I mean I had a decent W2 job. It was not extreme. I was making 90 to a hundred thousand dollars a year, but I had no savings whatsoever. That cash out refi I put about fifty thousand dollars in my you know bank account, which was all the money I had. and then finding a good partner to get started and then go from there. I did do one flip in there too in 2019 2020, no 29, 2020. I did one flip in 2020 that produced about, I don't know, maybe 35 dollars $40,000 in profit as well. Of course, about 30% of that went to Uncle Sam when tax time came. But uh, even that was just an extra little cushion. But yeah, I just, I made sacrifices. Uh, you know, live like nobody is willing to now, so you can live like nobody else can later. Um, I'm still, I'm I'm, a, I'm house hacking right now. I, I bought a duplex. I short-term rental out the downstairs because it's in Pigeon Forge and I live in an 800 square foot apartment above it. You know, Obviously I could go buy a really nice house right now if I wanted, but I'm continuing to sacrifice because that's how you move forward quickly is to sacrifice.
0: A lot of people forget that piece of the puzzle. So a lot of people they're like, well, how'd you do this? How'd you do that? And they think that we just like manifested this money for down payments when we first started out of nowhere. And in reality, like I had this, um, Uh, I don't want to say epiphany, but I definitely had a moment when I was in, sorry, this isn't relatable to a lot of people, but, you know, insert store here. But I was in Sephora the other day and I had like a basket full of stuff. I had like 10 things in my basket. And I remembered years ago when we were saving for our second and third property, Luke and I had ourselves on a $20 a day budget each including gas, including food, including everything so that we could save for a down payment. And I remember I would purposely like eat the cheapest thing possible, aside from the fact that that's what the budget was for. But I would get like a Taco Bell bean burrito because they were a dollar and nine cents for lunch every day so that I could save up to buy like one twenty dollar lipstick at Sephora at the end of a week or two. So I, I thought about that last week, walking through Sephora, not even thinking about what I was throwing in my basket. And then I thought, wow, this used to be a really big deal for me to come to Sephora and get like one lipstick. And it's, you really, a lot of people forget about the the sacrifice piece. And that's a really, really important piece of real estate investing. If like, if you don't have the down payment, which we did not, you just have to save and you have to find those ways to, to do it. And like what you said earlier, live like no one will today. So you can live like no one can tomorrow. It's really, really good good piece of advice.
1: Yeah, I I still do it. I'm still I still in frugal, if you will, call me cheap. I still look at everything when I'm looking at a menu and I'm out to eat. I still look at the prices. You know, I don't need to, but I, I just can't help it. It's it's in my nature to pay attention to that because I'm, st- I'm still in growth mode. And uh, yeah, but I mean, sacrifice in the front end. I worked in the you know, my background before, like I said, I worked at a Harley shop. That's how kind of Luke and I first really connected aside from the monsters rock cruise connection. And um, I actually sold my new Harley. I was about a year old at the beginning of 2020. I sold my Harley and even that cash, which was not a ton of cash was the cash I used for my down payment on the first cabin I bought. And that was a year and a half ago, basically. So, I mean, I was still sacrificing then I've been fortunate that I replaced my W2 income. I worked W2 and worked at the short-term shop a good portion of last year. So I got the kind of double dip and then left the W2 at the end of last year. And I've been very fortunate that I've, you know, made a good income this year, but I've taken every dollar I've made and put it right back into more properties. Every dollar from, you know, commissions, every dollar from every little side hack, every dollar from all the properties, it all basically goes back in. I pull out money for myself when I need it and when I absolutely need it and that's it.
0: I 100 percent am on the same page with you there too every like everything we make the vast vast majority of that goes back into real estate investing Luke makes fun of me all the time and he's like you are in the highest possible tax bracket and you have not bought new socks in like five years <laughs> <laughs> I'm like well you know that's that's what. It's what we do. We just put it all back into real estate. And that's how you get from zero to 105 doors. We just signed closing docs on our 105th this morning in five years or for you, you know, 11 doors in a little under two, it can be done. You just have to make some, some adjustments to, to what you're spending your money on, whether it's more real estate or whether, you know, you're just saving. Uh, do you have any like hacks for saving or being frugal or you just look at every dollar? Is there like a spreadsheet you use to save?
1: I won't say there's anything I use to to truly save. Um, I've been using Quicken, the good old fashioned Quicken, not QuickBooks Online, good old fashioned Quicken that's on your computer. I've been using that to track my own personal finances, I think since 1999 when it first come out. So I do track it. I know where every dollar goes. Um, I don't I don't track down to every cash dollar. If I take $20 out of the ATM, I don't actually necessarily keep track of where that $20 went. I just recognize that it it's cash that I spent on myself. But I absolutely pay attention from that standpoint. Other than that, no, it's just, I'm frugal. I I, don't, I think about every dollar I save. When I first started, I'll call it a, a midlife crisis, was uh, it started with health. And people talk about different diets and this and that, how you lost weight. And I lost like 30 pounds in about six months. And I didn't do it by going on a specific diet. I just started paying attention to everything I was doing and treated every single decision on is this going to help me get to where I want to go. So I still do that with money. It's not a specific budget, but I just go, all right, if I spend this right now, is that going to help me get to where I want to be or is that going to hold me back? And every decision is based on that that moment of whether it's going to move me forward or not.
0: Really, really great advice. That's something I could sit here and talk about for like probably another hour, but there's a lot more interesting things about your journey that people want to hear about. But I definitely came from like the Dave Ramsey side of things. So I think that as much as I don't agree with a lot of the stuff that he teaches now at where I am now in life, but reading all of his books to get myself to the point where I could, where I had the extra money to go then invest in real estate, uh, it definitely, I don't want to knock... Mr. Ramsey because his his teachings are, teachings I just made him sound like some kind of a cult leader his um, his, his advice is pretty sound if you're somebody that's trying to save money but then once you get into like you know actual investing and, and having mortgages and stuff maybe not so much but uh, if you're like at the starting at the very beginning of your journey and you are, are working on saving for that down payment not a bad place to start is with the Ramsey books Luke will, will disagree but Um, i agree
1: (laughs) premises make sense when you're first getting started for sure because people don't the problem is is nobody teaches anybody about money you know so Mm -hmm. his, his ideas will at least help put you in the right path of not blowing it right if you're buying a new boat and you're buying the biggest nicest vehicle you can buy and it's stretching your budget and you get a raise and what you think about is oh we can trade our car this year how much more can we spend then you need dave ramsey to help get that under control once you get that under control, I I grew up in a frugal family. I grew up where we paid attention, so I didn't have those frivolous spendings. Now, like I said, it fell into the lifestyle creep, but that was more of about just the little things like the Monsters of Rock, you know, we spent our entire vacation budget and then some because that was something that I knew I was really going to enjoy and, and want to do. But as I looked as I look back, I'm obviously glad I did it, but I recognize that it wasn't going to get me to where I want it to be, you know, and I can go back now and go on those things all day long, but at the same token, I don't believe in regrets. So, I mean, everything is part of the journey. So I just, you know, you look back, you learn, you pick up on the lessons and then you just go, okay, what do I do next?
0: Absolutely. So let's go back to your portfolio really quick. Let's talk about your short term specifically. So you have about 11, Uh, I know most of those are in the Smokies, but can you kind of talk about, let's focus on the Smokies for a second. Um, What's in your Smokies short-term rental portfolio right now?
1: So I have uh, 10, nine of them are actually active. We'll go back to the very first one. It's a little 600 square foot honeymoon cabin. Uh, That was the first one I bought. Second one I bought is a three bedroom that sleeps 10 in an area called Cobbly Knob, which is... East of Gatlinburg. Uh, bought one uh, kind of close to my honeymoon cabin. It's it's a one-bedroom with a loft, but it's a one-bathroom. So I, I rent it as a two-one, but it's high up on Bluff Mountain. It's got amazing views. You can see Mount Leconte. you can see Klingman's Dome. You can see all of Pigeon Forge. You can actually watch the Dollywood fireworks from up there. You can see one of the roller coasters with binoculars in Dollywood. Um, so that's a two-one. That's actually dollar for dollar, probably my best producing property. And then the big jump came this summer when I got a lead from a guy I know who found out about a portfolio of five cabins in Townsend, which is still part of the Smokies, but not in Sevier County. It's about 35 minutes from Pigeon Forge, but it's near the western entrance of the Great Smoky National Park. Still draws a lot of people, but doesn't have quite the boom that uh, Sevier County does. But he comes to me with this guy who's... In his 70s and he built five cabins on five acres 20 years ago been renting them out mom-and-pop style for 20 years at like a hundred and twenty-five dollars a night these were three two bedrooms and two three bedrooms and he was ready to get out of the business and I had no idea how I was gonna be able to fund it or buy it but I said yes I will and I made that happen so I more than doubled my portfolio with one purchase and then shortly, right around the same time, had another one-bedroom honeymoon cabin pop on my radar, and I was in a position that I had some cash. So I just threw down a really aggressive cash offer on it and picked it up. So, uh, oh, and then my duplex. I forgot that. In, in, in between the first one and the second one, I bought my duplex, which I remodeled. It's a quarter of a mile from the main strip right behind the Hollywood Wax Museum in Pigeon Forge. And I you know did a complete remodel on that. It took a few months, but I started renting that one out at the end of last year. Uh, That's a two bedroom, one bath, and it is not a cabin at all. Vinyl siding, I did do all new vinyl plank flooring, and I put some tongue and groove wood accents, and I made it, give it kind of a rustic feel, but I, because of the proximity to Pigeon Forge, and I made it dog friendly, those two things have allowed it to be a pretty decent short-term rental, and like I said, I live in the same building, so it, it basically allows me to live for free and still make some pretty good money.
0: Okay, so I think that's going to pique a lot of people's interest because you have basically found a unicorn. You have found yeah. a house hack burr short-term rental.
1: In Pigeon Forge.
0: In Pigeon Forge, like right in the the like the like pinnacle of everything. Uh, not pinnacle, uh, whatever. You know what word I'm trying to look for. Mm. I, I can't find my words anymore. Uh, so... That's something that I have to when we get clients, I kind of have to dial them back of trying to uh, like mix too many different strategies into one property just because it's really, really hard to find something that is going to be a value add and also a house hack and a house hack and also a short term rental that will work in a vacation market. Because, you know, like if you're doing something in San Francisco, you can buy a house and then Airbnb your different rooms. But something like that's not going to work. In a vacation market, so, um, like that's that's pretty crazy uh, yeah, to be able I to mean, find something that probably,
1: hits on that. I, I refer to it as my purple unicorn that craps rainbows because that's, that's about what you're gonna. That's about how many of them I'll give you. You know, to, to give you an idea, people who think, well, I want a multifamily and pigeon force that'd be awesome. Well, I went to get a HELOC on this property this year, and when we tried to find comps from the appraiser to give me a value on this property, he could only find four small multifamily properties that had sold in this market. And the most recent one was over a year ago. So I mean, these things are just, they do not exist in this market. And this thing, I bought it at the end of 2020. its It had sat on the market for about nine months. They originally were about $150,000 higher than what I ended up paying for it. They just slowly kept coming down on it. It was built originally in the 50s. It's been added on to. It needed a lot of work. I put $70,000 into the remodel of this property after I bought it. Now, I moved into the upstairs unit. It didn't really need any work. Um, I spent maybe a few hundred dollars updating that. And then I put all the money into the downstairs. And I'm going to make, I think I'm going to gross about $60,000. Out of the downstairs this year.
0: Oh, well, that's not bad at all.
1: Not bad at okay. all. I mean, it's it's unique. You know, my guests do not know that I live upstairs. Uh, they know that somebody lives upstairs and that that person has a big dog because I warn them about <laughs> that. But uh, I have never once, you know, I'm very conscious of it, though. I treat it just like you would respect anybody else if you're living in an apartment or anything else. I try to be super quiet. You know, I try not to interfere. I've never once had a complaint about you know, a guest complaining about the guy upstairs is making too much noise. So, I mean, there's, again, back to those sacrifices. I can't crank up the tunes on a Saturday night and rock out. I couldn't bring my drum set up here and set it up and start practicing on a Wednesday if I just felt like it because I got people staying downstairs. So, again, back to the sacrifices.
0: (laughs) The guy, in quotes, upstairs.
1: (laughs) He's a nice guy. He's quiet. You don't have to worry about him too much.
0: (laughs) Well, okay, so let's go back to your property in Townsend, and the guy had been managing himself, old-school, $125 a night. What made you think that you could um, do a better job managing than him? Like, what did that rental history mean to you? Uh,
1: Rental history didn't mean anything to me. Um, I've been around you and Luke and and studying short-term rentals and everything to know well enough that in a market like this, when you do it right – I don't care what it was doing. I know what it's capable of doing. There's plenty of data out there that tells us what properties are capable of doing. Now, Townsend's a little bit unique because we don't really have we don't compile the data because there's just not as many short term rentals over there. And it's kind of it's not really the Smokies, but it's it's kind of its own little thing. But my knowledge, my experience, I am very much a ready shoot aim kind of person. I go up. I gut instinct way more than most people would ever even think about. I do not put a lot of emphasis on analyzing, which is very contradictory to what a lot of our clients do. And a lot, I wouldn't advise them to do this. I have a very good gut instinct call, you know, people will say that's impossible, but it's done well for me so far. I'm sure at some point it'll bite me, but I went in there and I just said, I I know I knew it was a gold mine. I knew he was under managing them. I knew if we put them on Airbnb and Verbo and got people out there, I knew I could do way better. I assumed it would do 20 to 25% less than what I thought I could do with a similar property in Sevier County. So I underwrote it based on that information. But it was was what I considered easily to be a smoking deal. I mean, it was anybody who's got any experience with short-term rentals anywhere close to this in this area would have recognized that the value that was there in this place. I've had to put more money into them than I thought I was going to have to, but Um, Ultimately, again, I I knew I was going to have to put money into them. So I did a really basic inspection. I didn't nitpick. I mean, I I just went in there and did it. I said, I'm going to buy them and figure it out.
0: That's kind of what you have to do. I mean, obviously, you want to analyze, you want to educate yourself and make sure that you're making good decisions, that you've chosen the right market, that you're buying within the criteria and price range and things that that makes sense for your numbers. But at some point, you do have to just let go and pull the trigger and say, Okay, I know I can do this. I cannot possibly analyze this any further than I already have. I know, this is what people expect in this market. And these these properties fit that criteria so whether you're in a mountain market you know the cabin thing if you're in a beach market like the bright color beach house or white is kind of the new beach house color or condo uh you just you know that this is what the tourists rent and as long as the price that you're able to get it for makes sense for the income that you're able to generate then you kind of just have to like pull the ripcord and just go
1: Yeah. And make no mistake. I mean, I've been in the middle of it for a long time. So my gut instinct is based on a lot of experience, a lot of research, a lot of, you know, a lot of deals, right? I mean, I, I've been a part of a lot of deals in the last two years. So all that experience allows me to be able to make probably quicker, easier decisions than somebody who lives in Texas has never been to the Smokies, has only started analyzing properties a month ago. You know, there's a big difference in that, but that's why having an agent, with some experience in your market is going to play such a big role because that person has the instinct. Now you got to get over the fact are you willing to trust it on this you know on this person's instinct because you, you trust but verify ultimately I can give somebody my opinion on what I think is something's going to do and I got confidence that I could do that with it. Doesn't mean they can. So they've got to have confidence in themselves too. So I can give them all the you know advice in the world, but ultimately that person's got to be comfortable with you know what they plan to do with it. So every person's going to be different. But it goes to show that it's very much possible. Uh, you just got to get in there and, and follow the system, do what everybody else is talking about, and then tweak, constantly be working on it. Short-term rentals are not passive. You constantly have to be in there tweaking and playing. If you've got one or two, it's not that hard. When you scale up to 8, 9, 10, there's work involved, and you got to stay on top of them if you want to maximize it.
0: Totally agree with that. So let's let's zoom in on the agent since you brought up being an agent and helping clients. Let's zoom in on that really fast. So you have done a zillion—that is a scientific number—a zillion transactions over the past couple years, uh, helping lots and lots and lots of investors get connected with their short-term rentals. Um, and what are some common pitfalls that you see? Uh, people get kind of tripped up on when it comes to buying short-term rentals? Are there, like, is there anything specific that you see people getting tripped up on?
1: Uh, I I mean, I got to go back to analysis paralysis, just people overthinking it and not trusting the system. You know, the reason people, you know, come to the short-term shop is because we have the knowledge and experience. Um, You know, a real trip up, I guess it's just not paying attention, not doing the education, they come in and they think this is going to be turnkey they think you think we're going to come in and just basically say here's a property buy it pay this much for it and you'll be fine you know they they've got to recognize that they have to put the work in you know there's a lot of different levels of clients out there you got the blue collar guy who's like you and i started scrapping up everything you've got a lot of you know very you know well-off professionals who are looking to subsidize future income so there's a lot of different concepts and mentalities from it. So you got to work with the individual um, to try to figure out what their actual purpose is. I always tell people like, well, should I buy new construction that won't be done for eight to 12 months? Or should I buy something that's existing and going to cash flow now? Well, what is your what is your plan? What is your intention? Um, getting tripped up is I think just people not having a clear understanding of why they're doing it. Um, I think that's the biggest thing it can come down to is what's your why and are you willing to make the sacrifices and really dig in to actually make it a reality?
0: That's so true because we get such a range of clients. Like for me, when I started, my goal was to add cash flow to my existing income so that I could free up capital to go buy more things. So we have lots of clients like you said that start where we started and then we have a lot of clients coming in that are super high W2 earners that are buying these for the tax benefits to offset their already higher taxes. So it's a different strategy depending on what your ultimate goal is. So that's a really good distinction to make is that it's not a one size fits all for everyone. It depends on what their particular goal is and what their particular situation is
1: yeah, it's it's personal finance, right? I mean, Mindy Jensen on bigger pockets always says that. It's a reason it's called personal finance. It's very personal to each individual. And no matter how much I talk to somebody, I'm not in their head. I can't figure out what makes them tick. I can't figure out what their real thoughts are. They may tell me one thing, but their actions may say something totally different. Um it's amazing how many clients uh, will come through to us and we'll have that initial consultation and then they will disappear. I'll never hear from them again. I'll reach out and they're just, you know, and then I've had some that six or eight months later show up, they've just been saving money and boom, they're ready to go. Um, it's, yeah, it's, it's they come from everywhere and it's a matter of just understanding what you're after and then we work around that. We work to figure out what will fit their model better.
0: Yeah. So, all right. I think a really good segue now is, so you just recently bought your most recent, said recent too many times, uh, your most recent short-term rental in Crystal Beach, Texas. So first I want you to kind of compare and contrast the differences in the two markets that you own. I know you have, you just got it live, so you can't really compare true income numbers yet, but in terms of analysis or the buying process, can you elaborate a little bit?
1: Uh, analysis and buying process was exactly the same for me, um, you know, and, and I'll say this. What led me to that is obviously I live in the Smokies, but, you know, 99 percent of my clients do not. And I'd always talk about how easy it is to re- to, to manage from afar. And it was easy for me to say because I lived here, so I wasn't having to manage from afar. We know it works. We know it works all the time. And I treat them like I'm managing from afar here. But I knew it was time for me to break, break out and go into another market. Plus, I could get the benefits of getting a 10% down vacation home in another market. So that's what got me looking at another market. I really wanted to buy something down on the Emerald Coast, closer to like Destin 30A area. But I never really, I don't know why, I just never could get myself to really look hard into it. So when we you know, decided to move into Crystal Beach and, and the Galveston market, I just kind of instantly went, all right, new market. Uh, what's it like out there? And I watched the introductory call that you had done to introduce the short-term shop to, you know, this new market we're going into. I looked at the data and what these properties make. I ran some, I did a little bit of research on insurance on taxes. So I had a better understanding because it sounded like these deals were amazing. When I looked at what the income did and I saw the purchase prices, I went, man, that's, that's, that's pretty good. And then I and then I started going, Okay, what about taxes and insurance? This is a beach market. This isn't like the Smokies. And I found out that, okay, there's definitely some analysis that if I had just used my Smoky Mountain knowledge, I would have really potentially screwed myself on what I could pay for something out there because taxes and insurance are a lot higher uh, on the beach. That was about the extent of my analysis. Beyond that, I did what I want my clients to do. I went to my short term shop agent in that market and I asked them to guide me, and I asked them to say, you know, is this a good property? And I did what my clients do. I I overanalyzed a couple of them, I overthought a couple of them, and uh, then there was two that popped up side by side. One of them was blue, one of them was pink, and uh, they were five bedrooms, basically identical. And I was fully planning to offer on the blue one, and I overthought it for about a day or two, And i reached out to her and she said i just put the blue one under contract for somebody else and i said damn it i don't want a pink house and she said derek look at the numbers does it make sense buy the freaking pink house and i went you're right so i bought a pink beach house on on crystal beach you know so that was the extent of my analysis i looked at what the average property did i looked at what the purchase price was taxes insurance did some quick math and i said yeah this is going to make me a ton of money just write it up. And even she was like, well, I need to get this disclosure. And I'm like, no, write it up. I want it under contract like right now. Figure out the paperwork later. What do you need from me? Just make it happen. Just get me under contract. So we got under contract and that was it. And I, I just went live on it two weeks ago. We are very much in the off season of the Gulf Beach markets. Uh, the property I bought is a little bit on the northeast side from Crystal Beach. So if you just go to Airbnb and search Crystal Beach, the map it brings up, it brings up this and my property's like right here. So it doesn't show up on that first page so that I, I recognize that. I know as it gets into summer, it'll be a different story. So I have nothing uh, personal data wise to show on that property. I've gotten a couple of inquiries so far on bookings, but that's it. Um, but I'm going back there in January to, to do some updates try to make it stand out a little bit. And I recognize that I don't I don't expect to make money on that property between now and probably March. But in June, July, August, I can see the numbers to know that uh, in come October of next year, I'm going to be in a very good position on that property.
0: That does make me chuckle a little bit, the pink beach house, because y'all, if you if you're not watching the YouTube, so or if you don't know Derek, he is a biker. He has long hair. He has a beard right now. He's got on a Harley shirt. He has tattoos. And for him to have a, a pink beach house it does make me chuckle a little bit
1: had you just had to do it at that point it almost became a badge of honor to say i'm gonna have a pink beach house and people talk about paint it's like no it's called save the turtles that was the uh the name that came with it and everybody's asked me if i'm gonna rename it And i'm like you know i don't know right now i'm just keeping it as is they got a big turtle painted on the back side of it there's turtles all over the place so right now i'm leaving it save the turtles if anybody wants to send me a send me a great idea of what i could name it or wants to see the link just uh hit me up and i'm happy to Hear suggestions on what to rebrand this thing before next spring. <laughs> Save we the, might, I mean, we just might keep "Save the Turtles." I don't know. I mean, that's what it is.
0: <laughs> well, all right. So let's. Talk a little bit about so your relationship with your agent so i know it is so easy for us as agents who are doing like a lot of deals and helping a lot of clients and we've seen you know we've seen the very worst situations happen so when things aren't uh you know when things aren't dire in terms of something going really sideways for a client we're like okay you know you get a little bit jaded so it's always really good to put the shoe on the other foot and become the buyer again so you don't get too far removed from how Truly nerve wracking it can be to be a buyer and how, especially how scary it is on your first couple of deals. So I really like to get back on, you know, the other side of buying sometimes and remember like, oh yeah, this is really, it's kind of scary. And I forgot how scared I was when I bought my first one between the time we closed and the time we got it set up to go on Airbnb. Like, I don't think Luke and I slept one wink because we were so anxious, hoping that this was going to do what we thought it was going to do. So tell me a little bit about that transition from being like this agent over here in this market who does all these deals and, you know, nothing's a super big deal because you've seen it all. Then having to switch back and be the buyer in a new market,
1: it took a minute. I did. I I resorted back and uh, had to had to get myself under control, had to remind myself what I talk to clients about all the time. And it is it's definitely a struggle. My first one was the same way I I almost backed out and it would have been the, a huge mistake to have backed out on my first one because it needed some repairs and we were trying to work something out and I was ready to terminate and walk away and so glad I didn't so I mean I get it and I and I do try to relay that to clients and say look I understand I get it this is probably the scariest thing you've ever done in your life it's probably the biggest purchase you've ever made in your life you have to let go and trust the system for me is so much mindset It's more when I'm working with my clients, it's more about getting past the mindset than it is about the actual purchase, because that's, to me, the easy part. The numbers make sense. It's going to make money. How do you get past the fact that this is such a huge purchase and recognizing that you can do it? And I always, always resort people back to our Facebook group say, get on our Facebook group. Don't take my word for it. Look at what everybody else that we've sold cabins to is on there talking about. These people have become evangelists for us. I mean, you have built such an amazing network of clients. Real estate in general, people wanna share, and our clients are no different. And it's amazing when you can get on our Facebook page and say, hey, I just had this issue come up and I need a plumber and it's Saturday night at eight o'clock. Who do I call? And 20 of our clients are responding and that person has a plumber out there at nine o'clock on a Saturday night that network is what makes it easier on us as agents because I can't be the source for everything but I can help point them in the right direction and when you've got hundreds of other people that are helping to support that that is what I help drive my clients back to to get past it is recognize that there's a lot of people out there that are doing this but I also recognize that that's not easy to do so it's just it's just working it's just working through it and one day at a time one step at a time and some people are ready to go faster than others and sometimes it takes a little bit longer but it's just getting past that getting past your your limiting belief you've all we've all think we can't do it and everybody else is doing it you know luke always talks about if he can do it anybody can do it so uh, i'm in the same boat i mean four years ago i had a w2 job and had no concept that i could do anything with real estate not sell it not own it not invest in it it was and I was in my forties and you could not have convinced me that I was capable of any of this until I just went out and did it.
0: That's really, really good advice. And we do have the best clients in the world that are super happy to help each other and happy, you know, even if there's something that we don't know, like about a certain neighborhood, and then one client says, Oh yeah, that's on a shared well. Like everybody's super happy to share what they know with everyone else. So that's that's really cool. I think we do have the best clients in the world. So thank you guys. And
1: we're we're only I mean, we're market experts, but there's only so much we can know individually. You know that's why that's why having that network is so critical and so important because it's impossible for us to know every single thing. Now you have a gift of a photographic memory; you can remember every single cabin you've ever looked at or been in, and that is not something that most of us have the ability to do. But it, it, having access to all those other people that can help, you know, hey, has anybody bought in this particular resort before? I mean. Yeah, I've sold, you know, whatever 160 something properties in the last 2 years, but I there's still there's still resorts and developments here that I've never even driven through because I've never had to go look at something or sold something there, but one of our other agents probably has. So, it, you've got to depend on the network around you.
0: 100%. So, let's back up just a little bit. You mentioned when you were buying that 5 property portfolio that you had no idea how you were going to finance that let's talk about how you have financed most of these things i know you've used you mentioned you use the vacation home loan for crystal beach but let's talk about some of the other stuff that's closer to home where you can't use that kind of loan
1: yeah I've done, done? A bit of, I've done a little bit of everything um so first one, i did a vacation home even here in the smokies even though i lived fairly close i lived far enough away that i could do a vacation home the second one was supposed to be just a standard investment loan, 15% down, conforming conventional investment loan. But I had structured the deal in such a way that I was gonna get a pretty good chunk of cash back. I, I kind of worked it out with the seller. I, I knew where they wanted to be and the list agent. And I went to our my loan officer and I said, yeah, I just got this property under contract and the seller's gonna give me all this money back in, in a credit. and And they looked at me and said, Derek, it's an investment loan. You can only get 2% back of the purchase price in uh in concessions. And I went, Well, that's not good because I just negotiated like four and a half percent. And the only way this deal works for me is if I do that because I don't have the money to buy it otherwise. So that led me down, okay, what do I do next? Relationships, talk to people, be building relationships. I went to some people I know and I said, Hey, I've got this deal. I need a I need a I need a loan from like a bank. And I talked to one guy who manages a small regional bank, went to him, gave him the numbers, told him what I was trying to do. And he said, as long as it appraises, I can make this work. Wasn't the spectacular loan terms. Uh, This was, uh, again, a little over a year ago. It's four and a half percent interest. This is when everybody was getting like two and a half, three percent interest. It was four and a half percent interest. It was uh, amortized for 20 years, 20 or 25 years with a five year rate adjustment and then a 10 year balloon. So it was not, it was a different type of loan. And I went, let's just do it. I'll figure out a way to refinance it later. So that's how I did the second one. The third one I had quit my W two job in November and I had this deal come to me and it's, and I was like, I've been working on this guy off market since August and here we are in at that point October, November. And he said, okay, I'm ready to sell. Do you still want it? And I said, Uh, yeah, but I just quit my job and I'm not about to get a loan. So give me at least 24 hours to figure out how I'm going to finance it. So that one, I got really creative. Uh, Technically, my parents bought a vacation home in the Smokies. They live in Florida. I funded it out of my cash because I had the cash. I could not get a loan. Get creative. Who do you know that might be able to get a loan? So that's how I did that one. I went back to that lender who gave me that first loan for the one in Townsend that's that was a commercial loan straightforward commercial loan that is not a property that was gonna you know in any way shape or form qualify for conventional lending because it was five cabins all on one parcel of land on five acres I went back to him we looked at it income only again came back to appraisal and because I had built a relationship with him it was easier to get the second one and then I I used my income uh for down payment i refinanced two of my other cabins that build up more income so i had a cushion and just started to you know it's it's creativity find a way you know when you think well there's nothing else you start asking how who do i know what are the other options and start digging in and i just keep i just keep trying different stuff and it keeps working
0: I think that's the nugget you want to take away is just keep trying different stuff until things work. And I also want to, so I've noticed a lot lately now that uh, DSCR loans are something that a lot of people use once they get past the point of being able to use conventional loans. So I see on our Facebook group, a lot, people will say, Oh, my DTI is too high for a vacation home loan. What are my options? And then I'll say, Oh, you know, you could try this DSCR loan. And then they come back and say, the rates aren't as good on that. Well, of course, they're not as good because there's never, guys, there's never ever going to be a loan that has better terms than a conventional loan. 30-year fix, it's the lowest uh, lowest rates you can get, lowest interest rates you can get. What's cool about the DSCR loans, the reason that the interest rate is higher, whether it's DSCR or commercial from like a regional bank or something like that, anything other than conventional, it's because they're giving you the loan loan based on basically nothing about you. It's yeah. the the DSCR loans, they're giving you this loan based on what the property will probably make. Of course, the interest rate is higher because it's a riskier move for the bank. So that's why the interest rate is higher. And at some point you get... To the point in your investing career where either you can't do any more conventional loans because you're, you've used too many of them, or maybe your DTI gets a little wacky. That was what our problem was. We ran out of DTI, uh, and the reason that these other loans will will loan to you not based on your own DTI is because they're making higher interest rates. So at some point, the rates within reason stop making as much of a difference because, you know, a commercial deal with 4% interest, I mean, I'll take that all day. So it just, it just kind of depends your, your goals for your loans and your financing change over time, just like your goals for your investing. So you're, there is nothing better, nothing with lower interest rates than a conventional loan. So keep that in mind when you're having to go find creative financing, the interest rate is almost always going to be higher.
1: Absolutely. I mean, when I did my private lending on my other stuff, I was paying three points and 9% interest. Um, You know, most hard money lenders out there, if you're in the, you know, the the flipping game, whatever, are getting 12% interest. That five family apartment house that my parents bought in 1979, their mortgage was a 17% interest rate. I had that conversation with them a couple of years ago. Back in the 80s, late 70s, that was considered a good rate. So, people who are worried about these four and 5% rates right now, it's like you got to look back at history. Now, back then, the prices weren't as high. So, those interest rates, you know, factored in, you factor it all in. But the interest rate is no different than anything else. It's just a number. You just run it in the numbers. Does it work? I don't care what the interest rate is. What can I buy it for? Plug in your numbers. Will it work? The other thing is, I see way too many people who are worried about this who have no reason to be worried about it yet. They're at like a 20% DTI, they have good W2 income, and they own one home that they live in. You do not need to even be worried about what you're gonna do when you run out, because when you get to that point, you don't worry about it anymore. It There's lenders out there, there's people out there that that can get you there, and it becomes a lot easier. Most of the people I see that worry about it don't even need to worry about it. Take advantage of those conven- conventional loans like you're talking about. I mean, if you're in the price points we're in now, it's certainly more challenging because you can't get conforming loans at, at, you know, up to some of the values of some of the properties we're buying. But there's jumbo lenders out there. There's lenders out there that will give you loans on those properties. There's a lot of options. I mean, I have not had to go into the DSCR range personally myself at all yet. Uh, but it's there's no reason why I wouldn't. I mean, as long as the numbers work, You know, I mean, and the other thing that's nice about those DSCR loans is they are fixed, you know, for 30 years, even if they are at five, five and a half percent, they're fixed for 30 years. Interest rates are bound to change at some point. You know, my commercial loan five years from now, the rate's going to change to whatever the market is. And if it's eight percent, it's going to change to eight percent. And then after 10 years, I'm going to have to refinance it because that's when it's going to be due. And I'm still going to owe, you know, $700,000 on that loan, $600,000 on that loan. If I don't have that cash and the interest rates, you know, have gone up, it could put me in a tough spot or if the values have gone down. So DSCR loans, the fact that you can lock them in for 30 years, even if they are at a higher rate, go ahead and do it. So if the rates come down later and you're a different position later, refinance it.
0: That's really good advice. Cut and dry. So we're to the last three questions of the show. The first one is what advice, knowing what you know now, would you give 20 year old Derek?
1: 20 uh, year old Derek was a real arrogant, uh, I'll choose my words carefully. Uh, <laughs> he was very arrogant and you couldn't tell him much of anything. Um, you know, it's you would go back and tell everybody young, my daughter's 20. So uh, I can kind of relate to this because I try to tell my daughter now what I wish somebody would have told me when I was 20. And that's just look, just pay attention, just see what's going on. Don't take my word for it. But 20 year old self needs to look at other people who are in a really good position in their life, who are really happy, who have success. And that's just not monetarily, who have wealth. I'm not just talking about money, but people who have a good life, if you're 20, and you see somebody that's 40, 50 years old, 30 years old, and they're living what looks like a pretty nice life, I would pay attention to those people. Uh, that, that's probably the best advice I could give 20-year-old me. Whether i would listen or not, don't know.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. um, so along those same lines, what advice would you give a new investor who is interested in getting started today?
1: Uh, first and foremost... Understand your why. Figure out why you're doing it. Don't do it because everybody else is doing it. You know, my mom used to tell me if uh, if everybody was jumping off the bridge, would you do it too? You know, whenever you'd want to get something, you wanted the new game or whatever because everybody else had it. So understand why you're doing it. Understand, you know, what your plan is. Maybe not the details, but at least loosely what your plan is. And then once you've got those things established, then stop overthinking it and just do it just take action. Uh, They say it all the time on Bigger Pockets and every other podcast. The first deal is not about retiring. It's not about getting rich. It's about doing the first deal. And I know that's hard to grasp on short-term rentals because it's a lot more money and there's a lot going on. But if you do it in the right market and you listen to the people who know what they're talking about, you cannot go wrong in the Smokies as long as you don't do something really silly like pay way too much than anybody would ever advise you paying for but the reality is if it's really just about doing it and getting the experience you can probably pay quite a bit it's hard not to make money in a market like this i mean it's really hard not to make money you got to sabotage yourself to not make money in this market if you pay more overpay, pay more than what you know the average person would you're still going to make probably five to ten percent in a worst case scenario so, I mean, you know, just go do it. Just go do it.
0: More great advice. And the last question is what is your favorite book that has impacted your mindset?
1: So, uh, yeah, it's several of them. The number one book, though, that really, really helped push me over the edge was a book called The Big Leap by Gay Hedrick. It was, uh, I'm sure I heard about it from a Bigger Pockets episode that book is what helped click in my head that i was capable of more that the only reason i thought i wasn't capable of something was because i had put a ceiling on it myself and that book kind of helped me trigger that, that this is my own limitation he talks a lot about limiting beliefs and i once i recognized that i was the only one limiting myself that was the trigger beyond that there's several great ones i'm a big big fan of Ryan Holiday. I know you are too. Of all of his mindset and and the, you know the stoic philosophies and really putting a channeling in frustration and anger and recognizing that none of that's going to do any good. You know, take a step back and look at whatever's going on and figure out how to take that and make it a positive and and build from that. So, um, the, the one other one I'm going to throw in cuz I have to is extreme ownership. Because that was another one that helped me recognize stop blaming everybody else for anything that's happening. Take 100 percent responsibility for every single thing that happens in your life, regardless of the circumstances around it, because blaming somebody else is not going to get you anywhere. Accept it, learn from it and move on.
0: All great recommendations. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on. And if the listeners want to get a hold of you, where can they find you? Uh,
1: email Derek at the short is fine. Uh, I am on Facebook. You can look up me by name, Derek Tellier. Uh, I'm on Instagram, but I am not very active on there. Uh, I think it's, uh, running biker realtor is my, uh, handle on Instagram. That's about it. But you can Google me as there's only one other Derek Tellier I know of in this in this country. And I believe he's like an English professor in Minnesota or something. So you probably won't mix us up.
0: (laughs) Google me, bitch.
1: Yeah, Google me. I'm out there. I'm not I'm not I'm not a big secret.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on and we will catch you next time.
1: Appreciate it. Avery. thank you very much.